making sure. Okay, cool. Hey, thank you, Craig. That was awesome. I, and I, I, man, I'm all about the Bible Project. That thing is amazing. And if you Bible Project, uh, excuse me, but uh, needed to say it nine times. Then I could have, I could have remembered it. But you know, it's a three-star church. So what are you going to do? When I was 21, I moved from Florida to Indiana, and uh, I got to, it was northern Indiana, and I got there in late November, so we were just right on the cusp of winter moving in, and I was excited. I was just, you know, I was young, I'm 21, I'm just, I I had been around the snow as as a kid, but, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have any responsibilities in life, it's, you know... Uh, And so I was just like, this is going to be so great. I can't wait. I had a bunch of new acquaintances and I was standing around talking with them one day and I was just going on gushing about, boy, I can't wait for winter to get here. And in my mind, you know, I was thinking, I'm imagining myself sitting in a comfy chair by a fireplace and watching the freshly fallen snow, sipping hot cocoa. And and I was telling my friends, I'm going to build a snowman and we're going to have snowball fights and it's going to be so much fun. And the whole time I was talking, one of the guys was standing there just scowling and shaking his head. No, and I finally looked at him puzzled. I was like, "What? What's up?" And, and he said, "You ain't been here during the winter, have you?" <laughs> and I thought about him a lot that first winter, <laughs> with sub-zero temperatures and the wind blowing. I never could get the windows or the doors sealed up enough to keep that frigid draft out of that house. And the early morning attempts at getting the ice off my windshield. And you'd go out in the mornings, your nose hairs would freeze up and, and you'd be tripping away at that scratch. And then to quote Nate Bargatze, I, I was born in the 1900s. So we used to have keys that went in the outside of the car to open it up. We didn't have little beep, beep, boop, boop things. And and trying to get the ice. If you anybody live in the north in the snow, do you remember the ice and the door locks and the oh, and then driving? Exactly, exactly. I've never looked back. <laughs> driving in, in, you've, not, you've not driven in the winter until you've been in Indiana with just state roads of miles of empty open cornfields. And the wind blowing that snow across and the, the drifts cutting the pathway. And like I said, born in the 1900s, no cell phones. So you caught in there, you know, the, it, it's, it's the rule. There's a farmhouse 300 miles away and you got to hope that somebody's there to, to, it was, winter was miserable. I, the, from that first time on, I hated winter. And I think, if I'd have had a little more realistic view, I, it might have prepared me, enabled me to cope with that winter, uh, that first one better. That's sort of what Jesus is doing in our text today. He's giving us a forewarning about what winter is like, of what it's really going to be like to follow Jesus in this world. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. If you've got a way of following along, if you'd like to, if you'd go to John chapter 15, please. We're in a section called Jesus' Farewell Address to His Disciples. It's on the eve of His arrest and execution. He's giving instructions to His disciples uh, about where this is going from here and warning them that He isn't going to be with them the way He had been before. Not that He wouldn't be with them, but not the way He had been before. 
And so he's been talking about things. He's been talking about our relationship with him, like as branches are united with a vine, we're united with him. And then he talked about our relationship with each other. And he repeated his command that we love each other. Uh, you know, it's been commanded three times in just a short section here between chapters 13 and, and 17. That's love is the predominant theme throughout all of that discourse. Now this morning, he's going to be talking about our relationship with the world. And I just want to warn you, uh, it's not going to sound nice. Uh, Jesus forecasts rejection for his followers. This is, a, this is an uncomfortable reality that we have to face as followers of Jesus. But it's not a reason to, to lose hope or get angry or frustrated. On the contrary, it's something that can inspire us to a sense of mission, even like Craig was sharing with us this morning. And we'll see that as we go. So if you're there in John chapter 15, we're going to pick up where we left off, starting with verse 18. Jesus is talking, he's continuing his address, and he says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they'll persecute you. And if they had listened to me, well, they'd listen to you. They will do all of this to you because of me. For they've rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs among them that no one else could do, they wouldn't be guilty. But as it is, they've seen everything I did, yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what was written in their scripture. They hated me without a cause. Whew, man, we, you know, we move so fast from love to hate in this chapter. It could almost give you whiplash. Uh, And yet it's a reality. You know, the world has not been an easy place for Christians to settle from the very beginning of the church It's recorded in the book of Acts. Christians were routinely beaten and threatened and stoned to death and run out of town and imprisoned. And throughout the history of the church, we find those things happen. Persecution has been leveled against the church in history. It's, It's happening in various places to this day. Now, to avoid hypocrisy... We have to add that Christians throughout history have done their own persecuting and discriminating against people that they've deigned as sinners. That's scandalous. It's tragically true. There's no excuse for it. All we can do and all we must do is acknowledge it and mourn it because it was wrong. It continues to be wrong. N.T. Wright wrote, The idea that the gospel of Jesus and his love could be spread by any kind of persecution or violence would be a sort of sick joke if it weren't such a serious mistake. The loser in all such situations has always been the gospel itself. Still, Jesus' warnings in this passage are not just wild paranoia on his part. They are prophetic. And many Christians did and do suffer unjustly in this world. Later on, Jesus is going to be explaining why he's telling them this news to help stabilize us if or when it happens, to be realistic about what 
winter is like in advance is to be equipped. So in thinking about our relationship with this world, we first have to realize that there are social consequences that accompany our commitment to Christ. When we make that commitment to follow Jesus, it's going to come at a cost. As Tim Mackey from the Bible Project puts it in his notes on this passage, what? Dot com. Okay, fine. I'm regretting having you come up here now. As Tim Mackey from thebibleproject.com puts it in his notes, to follow Jesus is to voluntarily allow tension into our lives. (laughs) I'm so glad I came to church. So we need to understand a few things here. When he's talking about the world, when Jesus is describing the world, you know, he doesn't mean this life-sustaining planet or our ecosystem or Bambi or something like that. When this term, when the term the world is used in the New Testament, it's a way of describing the systems of this broken world. It's speaking of the societal, governmental organizing of people that is determined to construct an ideal world without its creator and his rule. And lest we start thinking strictly in terms of, you know, systems like atheistic governments like the former Soviet Union or present-day China or North Korea, we have to note The context in which Jesus uses this term is Jerusalem. (laughs) He was referring to those who called themselves Abraham's children, his own family members in that sense, who held to the law of Moses. That is who Jesus is identifying as the world in this context. They're the ones directly threatening Jesus at that time, the leadership at that time. They're the ones who, he's going to say later on, will put Jesus' followers out of their synagogues, who think they're doing God's work by killing Christians. So the world, as Jesus uses this term, applies to all systems, religious or secular, that assert a model and a source for living that is in opposition to Jesus, his teaching, and his example. That's going to encompass a lot when he talks about the world. The world, according to Jesus, it loves and it hates. It loves whoever conforms to whatever system it employs, and it hates whoever it is that goes against the grain. And Jesus makes his claim as king. To be Messiah is to be king, which by its very nature is a threat to every other system that claims autonomous power. And Jesus told us this would happen. In fact, you know, it's sort of a promise. It's not one you find on a daily promise calendar or something, but it's a promise nonetheless. They're not going to like you because of me. Don't let it throw you, he's saying. It's just all part of the scene that you're getting involved in here. Now, it's important to note also that that it's the rejection of Jesus that's at the heart of this warning. Very important distinction to make. Because, you know, Jesus came and he did good and he healed people and he preached to forgiveness and he reached out to the marginalized so they took him and they beat him and they crucified him like a criminal which prompts him to quote psalm 69 4 they hated me without a cause without a reason and to me that's such an important phrase that wasn't just him trying to you know come up with a you know you know with a chain link in in the in the connection here to the scriptures this is him trying to communicate something it's an important phrase to remember it's important to make sure that any hatred uh towards christianity is unreasonable 
And too often, historically and even presently, the church is hated not because of the good that comes from following Jesus, but because of our own ugly behavior or rhetoric. So pastor uses church funds to support some sort of lavish lifestyle for himself and is abusive to those he's supposed to serve and or sexually harasses them and then that gets broadcast on the news or or some church group openly slanders and speaks offensively about someone they consider sinful and they get slapped with a lawsuit that is not persecution make no mistake that is not persecution uh, for the church that's not hatred without a cause that's just paying the price for bad and reckless behavior. It's not suffering for Jesus' sake. It's just pushing pushing the the same broken patterns of this world, but then slapping Jesus' name on it. True persecution is a good rule to have thumb. True persecution is unreasonable. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.15, if you suffer, it must not be for murder or stealing or making trouble or prying into other people's affairs. All that ends up doing, that's what Peter's trying to warn the church. All that ends up doing is giving the world a reason to think they're right in hating Christianity, even though Jesus had nothing to do with any of that. An unreasonable hatred for Jesus and his followers, it is a real thing. It's real. We don't want to diminish that by trying to, to use that as a cover for bad behavior on our part. So let's be careful in how we conduct ourselves, how we speak, even to those who reject us, who, who line themselves up in opposition to our convictions or our faith. Let's do all we can do to live at peace with all men, as Paul tells us to do in Romans twelve eighteen as much as it lies within you. So as far as what we can control, let's determine to make any hatred for Jesus remain unreasonable, not because of what we've said, how we've behaved, or or things that we've done to others. So Jesus explains there, there, there are going to be social consequences that come with following him. And so what's our response supposed to be? You know, what do we do when, you know, we're human beings? What, what do we do when, when this happens? Well, he kind of goes on to tell us, verse 26, but I'll send you the advocate. Remember the, the Holy Spirit. This is the advocate. This is the terminology that he uses for him. One who is there to support, to, to comfort, to, to be our, to, uh, our spokesman. The spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and he'll testify all about me. And you must also testify about me because you've been with me from the beginning of my ministry. I've told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. For you will be expelled from the synagogues. And the time is coming when those who kill you would think they're doing a holy service for God. This is because they've never known the Father or me. So what is our response supposed to be when we're faced with unreasonable rejection or opposition what does jesus tell us is our responsibility in in this does he tell us go get lawyers guns and money and just get ready for a fight go hide in the woods with a commune and withdraw from society altogether no verses 26 and 27 what is he saying here the holy spirit will testify all about me and then verse 27 and you must also testify about me 
I mean, it's really cool. Craig was kind of teeing this up this morning, this mission that we're on. God's response to a rejecting world is not to abandon it or fight against it, but to empower an ongoing witness of hope. Even in conflict, we're called to offer the hope of Christ's love for all people. God doesn't leave the world that rejects his rule. God so loved the world. It's a pretty famous verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his one and only son. And he continues to bear witness to the world. That is to offer hope, the hope of something better. And it's a good thing, too, because we were all part of the broken patterns of this world at one point. And God never gave up on us. The whole reason we're here today is that God never gave up. Even though he would have been fully justified in walking away from me, I can only speak for myself, but man, how many times I rejected him? How many times did I curse the faith that I was brought up in? How many times did I use my wit to mock and torment those who confessed a faith in Jesus? God could have so justifiably left me to my own consequences, but he didn't. No, instead he hounded me. All through my unreasonable rejection, he kept at me. And he saved me from that broken self. This is God's intent. This is God's desire. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the triune God in the theological, technical terms of it. But it's this eternal witness that there is a deeper kind of life than we ever dreamed possible outside of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit indwells and empowers us to be the vehicle through which this witness comes. He enables us to do this. So, I mean, this is important. While we're in a culture that is ever increasingly moving away from and even becoming hostile to our faith and our convictions, our response is not to retaliate. Our response is not to resent what's happening here or to begin calling people names or curse our governmental leaders or get vindictive or return evil for evil. We're told over and over again, it's another, another kingdom, it's another way. And nor are we to retreat from the world, hide in our Christian bunkers and lob scripture grenades and anything that looks like a threat. Uh, no, we're supposed to go into the world and live there. Not, not be of it, but be in it, just like Jesus did, and bear witness to the hope that we have in Christ. The hope, to the hope of God's kingdom coming and, and setting things right, to offer that hope in love, even in the face of rejection. And when we look at those that went before us, in all the various times throughout the history of the church, when the church has been efficacious and turned the world upside down, it's when we've operated in that kind of radical grace and forgiveness and love. Well, Jesus elaborates on this uh, in chapter 16, verse 4. He says, yes, I'm telling you these things now. So that when they happen, you'll remember my warning. I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you a while longer. But now I'm going away to the one who sent me. You know, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I go away, then I'll send him to you. 
And when he comes, he'll convict the world of its sin and God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you'll see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There's so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on His own, but He'll tell you what He has heard. He'll tell you about the future. He'll bring me glory by telling you whatever He receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever He receives from me. Okay, this is where we'll stop today. Listen, you know, you read this and you think about the disciples and being in their position. We read it from a position of hindsight. We know where this story's going and everything, and we're like, what's wrong with those guys? But honestly, it is perfectly reasonable that they're beginning to get more and more bummed the more he's talking. Not only is he leaving, but he's also saying, yeah, you're going to get kicked around a lot too. And uh, yay! Uh, but Jesus reiterates that it's advantageous, advantageous that he leaves because... We will have a mission and a purpose as his representatives in this world. And we will be empowered by the same Holy Spirit who empowered him. And I think that's pretty cool. As he said, we're we're commissioned to bear witness, to keep offering this hope that's in Christ. But here we see in describing that, Jesus talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's something for us to take note of here. We realize then... And this is the thing, this is kind of the big thing in this, that God's work in this world is done by His Spirit, not by human ingenuity alone. In fact, that's the great contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Our calling is to cooperate with the work of the Spirit, not to usurp it. Now, there's several things that Jesus said that God's Spirit is doing. He's convicting and guiding and speaking and glorifying The word convict in the Greek has a variety of meanings, but largely if you were to condense it, it it means to to convince or maybe to refute, or largely it means to expose, which becomes thematic in John's gospel. John's been a genius with this all along, working on contrasts. He first introduces us, the light comes into the world, and the light exposes the darkness. And here, as we come to the, the concluding statements of Jesus, we're getting that same concept of light and dark, of, of revelation and contrast in all of this. So the Holy Spirit exposes the faulty patterns of this world by contrasting them with Jesus's revelation of what life is or what it's meant to be. This is God's work to expose this false reality that we live in. I think that's one of the most challenging things for me as I've been a follower of Jesus all these years is to come to grips with with Understanding that this, what we are living in, is not the fullest reality. That's a hard one. Because, I mean, you know, I'm a person who just kind of falls back into rationalism pretty quickly. And so that's a, a struggle for me. How can you say this isn't real? And it is real, but it's not the fullest reality. And so this is what the work of the Holy Spirit is doing to bring an awareness that things in this broken system of of a life outside of God is not going to end well. It's not going in the right directions. It's not producing what we think it'll produce. And then the Holy Spirit points the way to hope that this hope that's, that's present in a life that can be found 
in a reconnection with God, in a reconciliation with God that, that brings us back into God's pattern of life to restore us to what we were originally meant to be, image bearers of God in this world, reflecting his goodness into creation. The Holy Spirit also exposes this faulty view that the world has of what constitutes righteousness or rightness. We, you know, it's a revelation. What, what the gospel provides is a revelation that we can't, by human efforts, build a better life outside of God. And the entire biblical narrative is about this story from the Tower of Babel, well, shoot, from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Battle, on and on and on, this constant effort by the human race to try to manufacture paradise without God's interference. But rightness, righteousness can only come through Jesus who reconciles us with God, which leads to transformation, uh, the, the change from the inside out. Not, not, not conformity to a system of rules or, 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 or static laws, but the transformation of the inner person that wants, that, that wants to do what's right, what, what God in, intends. You know, the whole idea that, that righteousness is something we're going to be able to achieve by our own efforts or our own wisdom is, is revealed through history for the failure that it is. Otherwise, we could point back to some point where it finally worked. But in the history of the known world, we can't do that. There's no point. We can find little spots where there were some high points. And we can say, well, things were pretty good there. Yeah, it lasted almost a year. <laughs> and then we were at war again. And, and that's the history lesson. <laughs> Look at the history of the world. It's a history of war. It's a history of oppression. We can't do it on our own. And, and so this is the thing. God's convicting work, this exposing of, of the situation as it is, isn't just telling people that we're no good and we need to start living better, because that's that faulty religious framework that somehow this is something we're going to fix. God's Spirit exposes that we are a mess, but we can't get our act together outside of depending on God and His transforming work. Those are the very first steps that we take towards rightness, admitting that we're powerless and that our lives are unmanageable and that only God can restore us to wholeness. Also, the Holy Spirit exposes the disastrous end of trying to craft an existence outside of God. It all comes to judgment, literally to separation from the only life that there really is. But again, I want to stress, that's only one side. We, we tend to focus on that part, but that's only one side of the biblical concept of, of judgment. The other side of that is that of restoration. Judgment carries with it the connotation of setting things right. Things are broken now, but God's going to set it right again. There's a good ending that comes to this that we want to participate in. That's the whole message right there. We go to Acts 17. Look at what, Jesus, what Paul says to the people of Athens. The whole thing, it, it uses terminology of judgment, but the entire concept behind it is there's something good happening here that you want to get involved in, that these other things are not going to lead you to. So, you know, in cooperating with the work of the Spirit, our, our bearing witness will take this sort of form. We bear witness to this, this life, this wholeness, this stability that's found in Christ. We bear witness to the idea that 
It can be on earth as it is in heaven in the way that we interact with our fellow human being, the way that we care for others as much as we care for ourselves. We bear witness to God's power to make us whole uh, again. And we live that reality out in the way that we live and we love one another that is different from this broken world's system. Now, I just want to point out too that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. And the word guide in the Greek means that he's pointing us in the way. He's not forcing us. He's not, you know, cajoling us. He's not dragging us. He's pointing us, guiding us in the way. And the Holy Spirit will guide us into the way of Jesus, is what he says, into the way that he presented to us, the way that he taught. And and this is important because he didn't say, I'll send you celebrity pastors or biblical scholars or prophets or popes who will guide you. Listen, God can use and does use all of those people, all of those human beings he'll he'll work through and communicate through. But it's the Holy Spirit within us who guides us. That's not something an outside force does. You follow that? Uh, you know, so it's the Holy Spirit who's going to shape us and put us on the way of Christ. Leadership in particular, but really the whole church in general, especially within the, the context we find ourselves of modern evangelicalism, it's always faced this real temptation to usurp the role of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. I mean, honestly, way too often we try to be the Holy Spirit uh, to each other. And a lot of damage gets done in the process. I, I'm a proponent. I'm, I'm someone who propagated and also, you know, felt the effects of that sort of thing. Our co- calling is to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit, not to take over that work. So we want to be careful then that we don't create an environment where we try to enforce our convictions on each other uh, by either our expectations or by directly dictating to someone else's life where they should be or what they shouldn't be doing. And, you know, that doesn't mean I had to qualify this all the time because it's kind of nuanced and it's not always easy to figure this out. But it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit won't won't speak through us to challenge or encourage one another. And honestly, if somebody is doing something that's harmful to others or the community, we're not going to just sit idly by and, you know, well, whatever their convictions are, they wanted to shoot in here. That's what it is. No, we're not saying that. But in general, plenty of space has to be given for, for God's spirit to work out his will in people's lives as they are following this Jesus way of life. We all need that space. We all need the space to be able to hear from the Holy Spirit ourselves. We can't force people into the way of Christ. We can't demand people glorify God. We have to leave room for people to hear from their, for, for, for themselves from the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit speaks. And he does speak. He does move. He does work in people's lives. It may not be happening the way we want it to happen. It may not be happening on our timetable. Well, I wanted them fixed by now. Well, you know, we just sometimes I feel like we don't have any confidence in, confidence in the Holy Spirit's job performance. We're like, you know, I'm not so sure about it. I think he's not around. We better take over here or whatever. And somebody comes and says, you know, so-and-so came to church last Sunday and they, you could tell they'd been partying all night. And I said, they came to church like that? 
Yeah. Man, that's awesome. God's Spirit is at work in their life. I hadn't seen them in a long time. So, wow, how cool is that? We've got to realize the Holy Spirit's at work. Let's don't get in there and monkey with that. We can actually, we can actually grieve the work of the Holy Spirit if we're not careful on how it is that we, we care for one another. And again, I don't mean that we can't ever speak into somebody else's life or, or, or uh, you know, certainly the Holy Spirit will use us from time to time. Exhortation is one of the things we're called to do, but it must never be a, as a command or an ultimatum, but always as an offering. Like, like, we offer our words to the person for their consideration and, 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 and discernment. Honestly, I mean, that's what I'm doing now. That's what I do every Sunday. I'm not telling you you have to agree with me on stuff. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to witness if this is right and if it applies. And if it does, how cool is that? But if we disagree, well, that's fine. That way we're not hanging our expectations on people. But we allow for the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide and to shape individuals and communities the way he intends it to be. So that's Jesus's discourse on our relationship to the world. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable topic to, to you know, I would love to just say, let's have your best life now. But it's, it's, Jesus says something a little different. So this is what he's telling us. This is the our relationship to the world and the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we're in this world. Let's not be thrown by someone or some group if they're hostile towards our faith or our convictions. A life of following Jesus includes certain social consequences that come with it. But let's continue to bear witness of this offer of hope that's found from Creator God through Jesus Christ to this world. Let's allow room for the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do, something that we cannot do in each other's lives. Allow the Holy Spirit to shape each of us according to his timetable and his purposes and what it is that he's doing. He's at work. We can trust him to do a good job when it comes to our lives and our hearts. We can entrust one another into God's hands and in God's hands everyone is safe. Right on? All right. Very cool. Well, if you'll stand with me, if you're able to, and Father, we thank you so much for your word, even when it's uncomfortable like this, even when we have to be faced with the realities of consequences that come with following you. We thank you, Lord, that that you're present with us and in us through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the guidance that you give us. We thank you for the way in which you convict us. We thank you, Lord, for the way in which you're shaping us into who you intended us to be. Father, I pray that you continue that work here. Help us, Lord God, in any place where we've, we've inhibited the free flow of the Holy Spirit to be able to work on one another's lives. Help us to, to entrust that work to you. But help us, Father, to love one another in such a way that it reveals to the world there is such a thing as heaven coming to earth, that it can be on earth like it is in heaven, just as Jesus prayed. Help us, Father, in, in our interactions with each other in this place and wherever it is you've placed us in this world. Help us to reflect your goodness, your love, and your glory. Holy Spirit, come. 
and make us into your instruments. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Well, Father, that's our prayer. We just want you. And that is, that's, uh, that's an easy thing to say. That's a very difficult thing to understand how that works out in the reality of our existence. But I pray that you, by your spirit, enlarge that concept, concept for us, that you are enough. He who has God has all that's needed. Help us to live like that. Do that work in us, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, speak a blessing on each other before we bail out of here. And uh, let's take these things with us throughout the week. One of the dangers, I just it occurred to me when I was during this song, one of the dangers from what Jesus said here is, you know, we can walk away from this with a level of paranoia or this idea of the world, they're out there to get us. Remember, take what's really important from this, and that is that our interaction with the world is one of love, one of grace, one of forgiveness, one of hope. So that's what we carry into the world. We don't carry more of the same chaos. We bring the hope of God's goodness and rightness invading this earth. So let's, uh, let's speak this blessing on each other before we leave here today. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you. Christ be over you. Christ beside you on your left and on your right in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God.